Uh, I'm so excited to talk with you guys this morning, not just because of the nine cups of coffee, um, mostly because of just what the Spirit of God is doing in our church and among us and in our worship. I had so much fun in here last Sunday night with you guys uh, for a week long, poke four churches worshiping Jesus together. God, God is up to something super good in this city, and I'm so glad to be here. Okay. So last week, we started a four-part series called The Four-Chapter Gospel, and we're talking about that the fact that how we see the world uh, determines how we respond to it. And so we, we talked about worldview and lenses, and what we're trying to do is develop a biblically faithful way of looking at the world, like what has God done, what is God doing, what is it that still remains to be done, because the other part of that that question train is, is what is our part in the story? What is God inviting us to do? D.L. Moody, uh, evangelist, theologian said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't matter. And the kingdom of God mattered deeply to Jesus. 41 times just in the gospel of Matthew, he's talking about the kingdom of God. In three of the gospels, when he arrives on the scene, the first thing he says is repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, you begin to read the book of Acts, and you find in Acts 1-3 that Jesus remained with his disciples for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God. So if it mattered deeply to Jesus, it should matter to us. And we're learning together that the story of God, is, or the kingdom of God, is not another thing on a long list of priorities that we have. The kingdom of God is the framework that should actually be determining our priorities. And we learned last week that to help us understand the kingdom of God, we could break the story of God down into four chapters or movements to better understand the big picture of what God is up to in the world. So just by way of review, uh, the four chapters are these. The, the first chapter is creation. We also said ought. Uh, creation is God's design and intention, the way things ought to be. And I gave you some homework last week. I said as you go through life this week, just Start looking around at your community, at the people in your circle, and, and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit saying, now that is not the way it ought to be. God has something better. The second chapter is the story of the fall. This is the reality of our present experience. Things are not the way they ought to be. Creation is broken. Sin has polluted it. We're going to jump into this part of the story today. But the third part, the third chapter, is the story of redemption what can be, what Jesus has made possible through the cross. God has taught us that things can be different. There is an answer in Christ for the way things are right now. Jesus has gone to the cross. He has bought us back. He has offered forgiveness of sins. And then in Matthew 28, he recommissions us, as he did in the garden, to be image-bearing people who were carrying out his work and his creation. And then the final chapter is the story of restoration. The story of what one day will be, what God has begun but hasn't yet fully finished. We're spending four weeks looking at these four chapters in order to build the right framework or the right worldview so we can respond to the world, we can respond to God's creation the way that he intends us to. So last week we started, as I said, with creation, chapter 1, the way things ought to be. Genesis 2.15 says the Lord took man put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. We unpack that word work, where Adam and Eve are both God's image-bearing representatives in the garden, and the word work means that he is to make it fruitful. They are to make it better. They are to cause it 
to flourish. The Hebrew word for that is shalom, when everything is the way it should be, where needs are met and gifts are fully uh, utilized. Remember, flourishing is not just having what I need, but it's being able to participate with God as I was designed to. This is the way it ought to be, and this is the job or the work that God gives Adam and Eve as his image bearers. So mankind is flourishing in a role, also flourishing in relationship with God and one another. Adam and Eve had this job, and the job was, it was awesome. They, they were, God creates this garden, and he puts them in it. Remember we said last week that God created mankind and mission concurrently. And he says, I want you to expand or extend this garden to the ends of the earth, right? All of creation was not a garden. How do we know that? God kicked Adam out. We're about to get to that. So their job was not just to tend this garden, but to expand the garden into all of God's creation. So if God created us for mission, if this was part of his plan, we ought to be flourishing in our work. That's the design. But I have found, I don't know about you, I do not always feel like I am flourishing in every job I hold. Anyone else? My goodness. I went home one year uh, in between, I think it was my, my, probably my sophomore and my junior year, and I got up north late, and so I couldn't find a job, so I went to a temp agency. I just needed to make money. College is expensive. And they said, we've got a job for you. You can work for a warehouse. And I'm like, score. Warehouser is this multi-billion dollar logging and paper company in the Northwest. I'm like, this is sweet. This could lead to a job down the road. And I show up, first day of work, they hand me, have you seen like, a, like those six or seven foot uh, iron wrecking bars? You know what I'm talking about? You're, no? Well, if, if your answer is no, you're grateful because they are super heavy and you dig with them. And they said to me, we need to put in new light towers in our parking lots, and we want you to dig the holes for them with a shovel and a wrecking. That, you're not with me. I should be picking up so much compassion and empathy. Some of you guys should actually be crying for me right now. Thank you. Like guys are walking past me on their way to their air-conditioned office where they are making way more money than I am, and I'm just pounding the dirt in 90-degree heat. This is not what I was made for. It became abundantly clear super, super quickly. So when I, when I, I, I look at the creation story, I look at what God intended, and I, and I start thinking, you know, sometimes my work isn't fulfilling. Sometimes my bills are bigger than my paycheck, and sometimes financial stress and work stress lead to relational stress, and that's no fun. If I'm supposed to be flourishing, what's going on? And so there's some questions I begin to ask myself. Here's the first one. If God created me to work, why is working so unfulfilling? Why am I not feeling like I'm thriving? Why is there not great joy in what I'm doing? If God designed me for relationships, why are they so complicated? And I'm not just talking about, I'm, I'm just talking about human interaction. I'm not even talking about romantic relationships. Wendy and I went down to uh, a pastor's meeting in Carlsbad earlier the week, in this week, and when pastors get together, especially if they don't know each other, it's like the lunchroom in middle school. Like, you walk into the room going, is what I'm wearing okay? Where should I sit? Should I go to a table with people? Should I go to a table where there's no one and hope they come to me? Are they going to like me? Are they going to talk to me? Why did I come here? I want to go home. How long does this last? It's just, 
we are, I'm like, God, if I was made for relationships, why am I so neurotic in them? I know this is just me. If God made me to, to know and to show his love, why is it so hard? Why does something want to explode out of me and damage people when I become angry? Why is it that sometimes I just want to withdraw from every relationship and hide in my bedroom or on my couch or out in the mountains? If I was designed for this, why don't I naturally thrive in them all the time? Why do they take so much work? So I read the creation story. I'm like, God, that's great. That's the way it ought to be. But it isn't that way. Why, isn't, why is it not the way it ought to be? And the answer is that we are broken people living in a broken world. And broken people break things. Another way of saying that is hurt people hurt people. So where did all of this brokenness come from? This obviously wasn't God's plan. The answer is chapter 2. The chapter on is, the way it is. Chapter on the fall. When things get hard... My dad used to say, it is what it is. Like, so-and-so lost their job. It is what it is. Dad, I don't have enough money for bills. It is what it is. Dad, you got cancer. It is what it is. He, he was just like, this, this, this is the reality. And so we have to find ways to meet with God in creation the way that it is. And it is fallen. Here's, here's how it happened. So we told this story last week. God made everything the way it ought to be. He gave it to us in Adam and Eve to rule over and said nothing is off limits. Just this is yours. Enjoy everything that is here. But God said he did have one requirement. He said to Adam and Eve, he said, I want you to trust me with one thing. Here's what I want you to trust me with. I want you to trust that I know what's best for you and that I know what's harmful for you. What's best for you and harmful for you in your relationship with others and in your relationship with me. Don't touch that. Don't try to take control over that because that is going to ruin everything. And God said to them, it's called eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the fruit of that decision, if you try to take that decision, will cause more harm than you can understand, both to you and to everyone who follows after you. Stay away from it. Leave it alone. And those of you who are Bible scholars, you know that that decision is quickly challenged. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we can eat from any tree in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. Two things that I, I want you to see in here just real quickly. The first is God never told Adam and Eve that they would die if they touched the fruit. Eve added that to the story. Every time we try to embellish something that God has spoken to us, it muddies the waters and it will tend to confuse things. So Eve put words in God's mouth that God never spoke. The second thing I want you to see is that the serpent comes to speak to Adam and Eve, and the very first thing he begins to do is he challenges God's character. And he's not dumb enough just to walk up and go, hey, the God who gave you everything is a massive jerk, and you should probably try something else. He speaks to them in half-truths. So they have this, this 
inkling that, you know what, that, that sounds kind of right, even though they should have known that it was off. Here's the first half-truth. He says, your eyes are going to be opened. You will see things that you can't see now. What is the insinuation? God is trying to trick you. God is trying to keep something from you. He's not a good God. He says he's turning this over to you, but he is keeping something for himself. This this idea that God is not a good God, that he's an angry God or a judging God, this is a a lie that has been perpetuating in culture since, since the serpent introduced it into conversation. And you hear it time and time again. God is mad at you or God wants to punish you. God hates you. God doesn't love you. How could he? Look at the world. The world's a mess. As if God made it that way. This is the truth. You will lose your ignorance and innocence, but in regard to evil. This is what your eyes are going to be open to. You'll lose your ignorance and your innocence in regard to evil. You will see things that you never wanted to see. And you will never recover from the loss of innocence. You don't get it back. Innocence is more easily kept than recovered. Parents, have your kids ever asked you a question, and your answer to the question was, we'll talk about that later? And when you said, we'll talk about that later, you meant like in 10 to 15 years. Tyler's really young. He's in early elementary school, and he comes to me one day, and he's like, Dad, did you know Justin Bieber's voice dropped because he hit puberty? I said, well, yes, son, I did. I did. And he goes, Dad, what's puberty? And I'm like, I know. I'm not quite prepared for you to know. And as you've seen from his beard, he has figured it out between then and now. (laughs) There are some things we don't want our kids to understand because then they have to deal with the consequences of that knowledge before they're built, before they have the skills, the capacity to really do so. This is what happened for them. Here's the second thing he says. He says, you'll be like God. He created you, he provided for you, he says he loves you, but he limits you. He's holding out on you. But you can do something about it. You don't have to steward creation. Adam, Eve, you can own it. You can take hold of it with both hands. This is the only thing that separates you from God, is you serving him, acknowledging him as king, so you can cross over. You can be your own king. You can have your own kingdom. The key to this is knowing good and evil. Not simply right and wrong, but what is good for you. And he says to them, you don't need anyone to tell you. You can decide for yourself. You can define for yourself what is good and what is evil. The temptation in the garden was never about eating fruit. The temptation in the garden was about assuming autonomy. It was about taking control and no longer living under the allegiance, under the sovereignty, under the rule of God. Why be ruled by God when you can rule yourself? That was the unspoken question. And they believe the serpent. They believe that God is somehow holding out on them, that there is something that they need or deserve that God is not willing to provide them with. Pascal said this, he said, Pascal, uh, God, he said, God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. What does that mean? It means we begin to define God through our own lenses and our own dysfunction. 
I'm selfish, God must be selfish. I'm controlling, God must be controlling. I would withhold for you, from you, God must be withholding from me. And so we start to think that God can't be trusted, and because he can't be trusted, he must be like us. And so I can do a better job, and so they decide to take over. We call this, this taking over, the fall. The story picks up in verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It's interesting that verse 7 says, this isn't in the notes, it just, just kind of came to me. Verse 7 says, the eyes of both of them were opened. But if you fast forward to the part of the story that we haven't gotten to yet, and you get to the beginning of the book of Ephesians, and you begin to read Paul's beautiful prayer where he is praying that the eyes of our heart would be opened or be enlightened, that we might see the hope to which he has called us, our glorious inheritance, the saints, and his incomparable great power at work in those of us who believe. In thinking that they were able to see, they actually became blinded to the goodness, to the love, to the greatness of God. And that blindness has carried down through the generations. They, they take the fruit and they eat it. And this is the moment where we move from chapter 1, the way things ought to be, to chapter 2, the way things now are, what now is because Adam and Eve had been handed the stewardship of creation by God himself and they basically had it in their hands took it to the serpent went here you go they thought they were taking control for themselves and yet they were giving control of themselves over to another creation ought to be good but now it is broken and sin attached itself like a parasite to God's good creation and as creation has grown, sin has grown with it. So from that first sin, it's like, I mean, we, this is the first global pandemic, right? It's in the garden. Sin attaches itself like a virus, and then it just goes and goes and goes and spreads and spreads and spreads. And with it, we have destruction and devastation and heartache. Because the sin of Adam and Eve was not simply rebellion against God, it was replacement of God. This is what they were trying to do. Sin is our attempt to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves. Remember, this overarching conversation we have is about the kingdom of God that was breaking in, in and through Jesus. Because in the garden, there was a division in kingdoms, and we began to build our own. So from the garden, this rival kingdom emerges where, where the ultimate object of worship is no longer God, but it's ourselves. They wanted to be God. I was, I was at the gym this week, and, you know, when you go to the gym at the same time over a period of time, you start seeing people, and you kind of like, okay, he likes to work out like that, and he listens to this. and So, so you can tell a lot by people's T-shirts. So there's a guy that I was working out same time, like 5 o'clock in the morning when I was stupid and going to the gym at 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I fixed that. I go later now. Um, and after like four weeks, I, I struck up a conversation because I could tell he was a Christian. He's always wearing these, you know, Jesus shirts. I was like, hey, where do you go to church? And Pretty cool guy. So, so this week, I, I see somebody walk in that I've never seen before, and, and they have like these, this massive picture of praying hands, you know, the, the praying hands on the back of their T-shirt. 
So now I'm intrigued. I want to know what the front of the T-shirt says, right? But, but you don't want to be a creep at the gym. You can't just stare at people like, could you turn around real quick? I'm, I'm curious about, about what you're wearing. And, and so I'm kind of doing my thing and out of the corner of my eye, and I see him turn around. So prayer hands on the back, and they turn around and stop, wa- wa- start walking toward me. And across the front, it says, worship yourself. And my heart broke. I mean, in that moment, I'm like, oh, you don't know the pain that that decision is going to cost you. Because that was the ultimate, that was the original sin in the garden. Adam and Eve chose to become their own gods and worship themselves. And we're still living with the fruit of their decision in our own hands, and it's still just as deadly. I'll just glimpse into my soul. I want to be in control. I want to decide what's best for me. And there are times where I want to read the Bible and choose the parts I'm willing to apply to my life. Like, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I have a plan for my life. It just, it's not supposed to work like that. I'm actually, I'm doing my Life 260 journal on Friday, and I'm, I'm, I I love it and don't love it when God just interrupts me. So I'm, I'm, reading in Luke, obviously, as we are, and I'm, and I'm journaling, and as I'm writing, uh, really, this very kind of heady dissertation, um, I just hear the Lord quietly say, I want that. I'm like, I'm sorry? He's like, that, that thing that you value, that thing that you're giving time and energy to, uh, I want it. And, and in that moment, I'm having an Adam and Eve moment. Like, if I surrender this to Jesus, is he really good enough? Like, does he really want what's best for me? Can I really trust him as I offer this to him? And then I've got this other thing going, look, you doorknob, you can't say you're super excited about the kingdom of God and simultaneously hold on to things in your own kingdom. I wouldn't recommend that your self-talk includes you calling yourself a doorknob, but I do it from time to time. I'm getting better. And so... We're still living in the tension of do we want to determine for ourselves what's good and evil or do we want to trust? Does anybody else ever just wrestle with that? Okay, those of you who didn't put up your hands, we're going to speak on lying next week, so no problem. (laughs) This is a direct result of the fall. This is now an area of struggle for all of us. This personal kingdom building. This, this thing where I want to pray, my will be done. It, it's interesting how quickly, I'm not mad at anybody. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm like, I'm talking about me. Okay, so I'm going to talk about me for a second. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. It's amazing how easily and how subtly this can, this can find its way into the heart or the mind of a believer, right? Um, might sound like this. God, you can forgive my sins, for which I'm very grateful, but please don't push me on the Lord thing. Uh, I don't, I don't want to talk to you about the king thing. I would like a savior who forgives me and lets me do what I want to do. I'm a little less interested in somebody telling me how to govern my life. I mean, I'll go to church. Uh, I'll sing sometimes. Never going to clap. I'm really not down with that. Um, you know who you are. No, I'm talking about me. I'm sorry. I'm talking about me. Um, I'll go to church. I'll give you some of my time. Heck, I'll even give you some of my money, but I'm going to stay in charge of me. My kingdom is going to come. I'm going to invite you into my life, but I'm going to tell you where you need to stay because I invited you in. I'll tell you what you need to do for me, Jesus. Hold on to your seatbelts, guys. 
Lord, I'm going to tell you what political party needs to win. Because we all know, Jesus, what political party you support. So this is, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. God, I'm going to tell you how our enemies should be treated. I'm going to pray that my neighbor's septic tank overflows. Look, he is, he is on me about this property line. What happens when we live that way? What happens when, when our mantra is my will be done? Genesis 3 verse 8. Let's look at it quickly. So they've taken from the fruit they've eaten. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now remember, before they even did this, it said their eyes were open. They realized they were naked and they covered up, right, Adam and Eve? Now they're hiding from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She did it. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. How many times do we look at God and go, this is all your fault? Like our actions had nothing to do with what we're walking through. It's what Adam did. Adam, did you eat? Well, you put this woman here. She gave me the, how could I say no? She was naked. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Wendy, you might want to wait in the parking lot for the rest. No, I just, was, needless to say, that was not in the notes either. Okay. Back to the gospel. <laughs> so when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, when they disobeyed God, there's a fundamental shift, right? They had known good, and now they know evil. Adam and Eve learned a very important and a very painful lesson. Adam and Eve learned that you obtain the knowledge of evil by participating in evil. Now, now, sometimes it's because we choose to engage with it, and sometimes it's because we're victimized by it. But the way you come to understand evil is by participating in evil, and they willfully chose to engage with evil, and they went from being whole, experiencing shalom, to being broken, from moving what, from what ought to be to what now is. And they realize they're naked. They're vulnerable. They experience shame for the very first time, and they attempt to hide. First, they attempt to hide from one another. They cover themselves, and then they hide from God. Adam and Eve move from the state of shalom to a state of brokenness, and the brokenness affects them in four different ways. First, they, they find themselves to be spiritually broken. They used to walk with God in the cool of the day. They knew his will. They, they knew his love. They knew his presence. They were unashamed to go before him. But once sin enters into the world and their eyes are open, they're no longer able to walk in friendship with God. In friendship with God. What does Jesus say to his disciples? I no longer call you servants. I call you what? Kingdom of God coming to restore. But that's another chapter. They experience psychological brokenness. As I said, they experience shame for the same first time, a sense of unease with yourself at the core of your being 
Shame speaks of distress and, and humiliation, a fear of discovery. Adam says, I was naked and I hid. And God says, who told you that? Shame has not been a part of our relationship. Who told you that you were naked, that you were somehow not acceptable just as you are, that there was a part of you now that had to be hidden? I can't think of a line that better describes the effect of fall on culture than this. I was naked, I was ashamed, and I hid. No longer was I confident being who God has called me, designed me to be. I'm afraid that I just told you it happens to pastors when we come into a meeting room. We're walking through with insecurity and uncertainty. This is not what God wants for us. This is an effect of the fall. It's the exact opposite of shalom, the the wholeness that God promised and provides. The third area of brokenness is you find relational brokenness. They hide from God and they hide from one another. And then, now we don't get to, to read the fight, but we sure get to see what started the fight. Adam failed in his role in the relationship flat out because God spoke to him first and said, don't eat. He passed it on to eat. Do you ever wonder if, I don't know, a day, a week, a month, a year later, Eve ever asked Adam the question, why did you let me eat that? Do you know what I think the answer was? Waiting to see if you die. If you died, I wasn't going to eat it. God said if we eat it, we would die. I let you do it. You didn't die, so I did it too. How do you think that affected their relationship? Bet Christmas was great for those guys. Hey, do you remember the time? And then blame surfaces for the very first time. Adam blames God and Eve. Eve blames the snake. And you and I have been passing the buck back and forth ever since. Why didn't you wake me up in time to go to work? Because you're a grown human being who can set an alarm. Why didn't you tell? I mean, we pass blame all, don't we? And then finally is physical brokenness, right? Cursed is the ground, God said, because of you. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. You will continue to work, Adam, but your work is going to be hard to be fulfilling. And by the way, childbirth, it's going to be a little rough moving forward. Because now that we're under the curse, we're actually at odds with the very creation we were created to rule. And what began with them has been passed down to us. As creation grew, as we said, sin grew with it along with all of its consequences. To the point where you get to Romans 5.12, which says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Sin entered the world through Adam, and you and I share in his broken nature, so we are broken people born into a broken world. This is what happens when sin attaches itself like a parasite to God's good creation. And you, you look around, and you see the effects of it. I just, it, it takes no time at all on the web with the Google to ask some questions. Here's what I found out in probably less than a second. Currently, 56 countries of the world's 200 nations are experiencing armed conflict. 19,000 children are still dying from preventable causes every day. Last year, there were 398 natural disasters, resulting in 95,000 deaths and a cost of $380 billion to the global economy. There are today 12,000 categories of diseases in our hospitals. 
I could go on to talk about substance abuse and mental health crisis, and I could go on and on and on. You go, yeah, well, that's the world we live in because of sin and the effects of the fall. So if this is our reality, how does God respond to it? The answer is found in God's response to Adam's sin. What does God do in response to Adam's sin? Does he yell? Does he send a nasty email? Does he send an earthquake? Or does he go looking for Adam and Eve? Knowing full well that they have sinned, that they have taken control, that they have taken over, God seeks them out. He comes calling to them in the garden. He could have walked away and nobody would blame him, but he chooses to walk toward them. He looks at Jesus and he says, I still love him. You're going to have to fix this. Jesus, you're going to have to go back and get them for me. We're going to have to find a way to redeem what they have done to my creation. And so God promises Adam and Eve, this is a chapter, but it is not the final chapter. He points toward chapter 3, the chapter of redemption with the promise of one who would come to crush the serpent's head. He says it will come at a cost. The serpent will strike his heel. It will be painful. It will cost... It will require a sacrifice, but I am going to put something into effect that will heal, that will redeem my creation. The second part of that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 says, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. God's saying, I will show them it doesn't have to be the way it is. It can be different. If... If, there's a caveat, if they're willing to put the fruit back on the tree, they can be healed. If they will enter into my kingdom instead of insisting on their own kingdom, they can be redeemed. They can be restored. But it's interesting when you read what else God says to Adam and to Eve. Genesis 3.25 says, God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. This is the same word that God used for work in Genesis 2.15, the first verse we read today, when God put him in the garden to work on it and to care for it. Adam is out of work. Excuse me, Adam is out of the garden, but he is not out of a job. Him, Adam, and through him, we are still called to steward God's creation. We are still charged with causing it to flourish. He expects us to make it better. How do we do that? Cliffhanger. I'll tell you next week. Here's what I want you to think about with me through this week. How is the fall affecting you? How is it affecting your work, your relationships, your spirit? Almost everyone says they believe in God. 74% of people in America say that they believe in God. But most of them are still living as if they can do a better job than he can. They're still locked up in a lie. They're, they're handicapped by their fallen nature, desperately trying to build their own kingdom. And so they're stuck in a cycle of pain. But it doesn't have to be this way. If we put the fruit back on the tree, the curse is reversed. This is the story of the chapter that is to come. Putting the fruit back on the tree is called repentance. Repentance in its simplest form means to change your mind about God. It means to turn around. If sin means to miss the mark, 
repent means to turn and try to hit the mark. Next week, we're going to talk at length about God's response to his fallen creation. But I wonder if for you, there are places like there was for me on Friday where God just said to me quietly, I want you to put that back on the tree. I want you to let me be God of that area of your life. Sometimes it's, I want you to stop trying so hard and let me do what you can. Sometimes it's, I want you to trust me with something you're trying to work out on your own. Every time, every time God brings something to our attention, asks us to put that fruit back on the tree, to stop trying to govern, rule, and we put it back, do you know the kingdom of God is coming to bear in that area? I mean, we're going to unpack this in detail, but, but the kingdom of God begins in the human heart. Because the kingdom of God, we said, is the rule of God. It's the reign of God. It begins here and then works out from there. So every time I choose Jesus over my own idolatry, every time I surrender something to the will of God instead of trying to exercise my own, the kingdom of God is being brought to bear in that place. We'll talk about this next week. Sometimes I feel like following Jesus isn't working. Like I'm living a a powerless faith. Here's what I've learned about that. If your faith is powerless, it's probably repentanceless because that's where the curse is reversed. And so if you want to see the curse reversed in your life, you just ask the Lord, where are the places that I need to offer up to you? Scripture says it's the kindness of God. Understand it. It's, sometimes you drop the R word, the repentance word, into a conversation and people are like, oh, that's so heavy. It's so hard. It's so bad. Scripture says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's because God loves you desperately, wants the best for you, and knows the best for you that sometimes he says, will you please give that back to me so that I can bring healing to you. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. I just, want to, I just want to pray a blessing over you. But before I do, if man, if there's anything that's starting to come to mind right now, the Lord might be bringing to your attention. It's, it's a place where you're holding on to something. He's asking you to surrender to him. Maybe it's a place that you're determined to see your kingdom come where God says, my kingdom works a little bit different. My kingdom offers forgiveness instead of judgment. My kingdom mercy triumphs over judgment. I don't want to do it the way you're trying to do it. If there's a place that comes to mind, would you just quietly in your own words, your own heart and mind, say, Lord, I I release that to you. I repent. I give that back to you. I give you room to work there, to do what only you can do. And Lord, as we offer these things to you in response to your love and your goodness, your kindness, your grace, Lord, would you begin to reverse the impact that the curse of sin has had in those places? Would you bring healing where there has been damage? Would you bring hope where there has been despair? Would you bring life where there has been darkness? God, I'm so grateful that your response to us in in our own brokenness is not to withdraw, but it's to come find us, to call our name. You're calling us today because you have such things in store for us. So, Lord, as we wrestle with the effects of chapter 2, we look forward in anticipation to chapters 3 and 4, redemption and restoration. We declare that the story is not done. You don't leave us in our brokenness. 
you lead us into wholeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.